saying yes to the marriage proposal of being united with God, it is both the easiest thing and the hardest thing in the world. Like it's the easiest thing in the world because it's it's free. And yet on the other hand, I'd say it's the hardest thing in the world because it costs us everything. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight on that subject. Now, if you're new to the show, we're not always going to agree, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to gain understanding by sharing perspectives in a way that builds bridges, but not barriers. Our guest today is Joshua Ryan Butler. Joshua is the pastor of teaching and direction at Redemption Church in Tempe, Arizona. He's the author of two books, The Skeletons in God's Closet and The Pursuing God. Joshua, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. It's uh, great to be on here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited we got to connect, man. Thanks. Definitely. So before we dive into our topic today, Joshua, how did you get introduced to church and faith? What's some of your uh, background with spiritual stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I um, had a good friend in high school who uh, was a, a Christian, went to church, and I, I was kind of interested and got kind of maybe a little more exposure to Christianity and the church with him. And then in college, I kind of I went to University of Oregon, and uh, I remember getting there my freshman year thinking, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this thing a shot. Like, God, I'm going to try following you. And um, long story short, I, I kind of got really involved for a year. Um, it just, I, I started, you know, doing Bible studies, leading worship, all the different stuff, and found myself, though, in kind of this catch-22 where it was like the more stuff I was sort of doing for God, the more distant God seemed and felt. And so I, I over the course of this year, I became more and more involved, more and more active, uh, but internally was finding myself more and more disenchanted, like this isn't working. And I kind of hit this point uh, that summer where, again, long story short, I kind of said, well, th this doesn't work. I'm, I'm I'm done with it. You know, I kind of turned, turned my back on it and said, God, forget it. And I had this encounter with Jesus kind of at that point where I quote unquote walked away. And what I, man, just felt like being surrounded by the presence of Christ. And what I heard him say was, um, Josh, you've had this whole thing backwards. Like you thought this was about you coming out to find me. And the whole time I've been the one coming out to find you. And that just flipped my understanding of the gospel of Christianity of religion, whatever on its head, you know, about uh, this thing actually being about a God who is coming after his world in Christ and that, um, following Jesus, like it starts with not so much doing stuff for God as much as receiving his pursuit of us and letting that begin to kind of the love of God beginning to take root in us and, and shape and form us as his people. So that was kind of the beginning. And then I, you know, came back to, my college dorm room and you know, I remember telling my roommate like, Oh my gosh, I had this amazing account with Jesus. Like God is so good. This is so great, whatever. And his first response back was, um, so do you think I'm going to hell now? <laughs> and I was just like, dude, I wasn't thinking about hell. It wasn't any kind of time. I was just captivated by the goodness of Jesus, you know, the goodness of God. And, um, uh, but this was a question he had and I began finding more and more, most of my friends were, were not Christian per se. And, and, and a lot of the questions they had for me um, were said like, dude, how can you believe in a God who dot, 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 you know, would send people to hell or it was so violent in the Old Testament or um, you name it, you know. And I began 
really wrestling with, um, God, I love you, Jesus. I, I, I can't deny your reality, but it kind of brought me back to scripture and going, dude, if, if this is in here, I want to understand it and begin really diving into scripture, kind of fell in love with theology, have always kind of loved reading and began grappling with kind of um, how do I understand uh, Jesus held such a high view of the scriptures as the authoritative word of God. And so just going like, how do I, Jesus, I want to follow you. How do I, how do I do the same as well? And, and understand um, how the whole of your story for the world can kind of shape my life. And so that, that was maybe the beginning of the journey. Hmm. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that your friends sort of had this, this question of you think I'm going to hell. And I think not only is it a great segue into what we're talking about, but I think it's something that every Christian struggles with at some point. It's this idea of hell. Where did this, you know, and, and you've written on it as well within your book, and, and it's the topic we're going to discuss today, but what drew you to that topic? You know, where did you sort of start with this journey of understanding hell? Mm. Well, over the years, I think as I got to know uh, the gospel better, Jesus better, the scriptures better and all, I began seeing like, I think there are a lot of caricatures out there. And um, there began to be these like paradigm shifts for me. We're going, oh, I thought it was this way. And it seems like most of my friends that have these questions assume or think it's this way. Um, but the gospel and the robust kind of tradition of the historical church ha reframes, I think, the way that we look at some of these questions. And so even in writing the book, one of my hopes was not to be the answer man, like, hey, here's all the answers to convert your friends, or here's, you know, uh, here's the, uh, here's how to beat people in arguments. Or I think the, the gist was more, I, the image I had in my head while writing it was myself now talking to myself 15 years ago, um, going, hey, these are the paradigm shifts I found really helpful that I think um, sometimes we have some unhealthy caricatures or distortions of what, um, the Bible and tradition are, are, are really teaching and getting at. And these shifts help us not dismiss or get rid of the topic. So let's say hell, you know, it's not like hell goes away, but I think it reframes it where we see it arising because of the goodness of God, not in spite of it or in contradiction to it. So one of my biggest hopes is really helping uh, people who love Jesus to reclaim a greater confidence in the goodness of God, that God is good all the way down, like in his very bones, like God is good. So let's talk about it. You, you had mentioned to me that there are four paradigm shifts within the book on hell. Can we, can we break down each one a little bit? Definitely, yeah. So uh, a couple more than four maybe, but there, there's four kind of key ones, main ones. And the first one I'd say is the story. Like what's the bigger storyline that this fits into? And there's uh, the problematic story, I think kind of the, the story that many people have in mind in the caricature is what I call the earth now, heaven, hell later story. And so it's kind of the story where Right now I live on earth, one day I'm going to die, and when I die, God's going to send me up to heaven or down to hell. And there are a number of problems with that storyline, um, but one that, uh, you know, I would say is, you know, like in this storyline, like heaven and hell have no relationship to our present experience here on earth. And likewise, earth has no kind of place in our future destiny with God. And the... And in that, like heaven and hell kind of become like these two co-equal competing counterparts that like one's yin, one's yin, the other's yang, one's positive side of the battery, the other's negative side of the battery. And the problem is like that's not the way that scripture actually talks about them. Um, yes, heaven shows up in scripture, hell shows up, 
but it doesn't talk about it in the same way. And here's an example of an experiment you can do that I, I found helpful to kind of scope this out. If you go to like um, an online Bible, like say Bible Gateway, or when you type into the search feature, heaven and hell, uh, the words heaven, hell, uh, and hit search, it's going to show you how many times those two words appear together, like in the same verse. And I found when I asked folks, most folks say, ah, maybe a couple hundred or, you know, even a thousand times. Um, but what's shocking for many is when you hit search, you find there's actually zero places in scripture where heaven and hell show up together in the same verse. Um, they never show up like as a phrase, like heaven and hell. And that should be shocking because that's just kind of the way that we tend to talk about it today. Like if you were to die tonight, where do you, you know, where would you go to heaven or hell? You know, um, you see the billboards with the clouds on the one side and the fire on the other side. We tend to think of them as these co-equal competing counterparts. Um, I would suggest the Bible has a different storyline. There, there is heaven does have a counterpart, only it's not hell. It's actually earth. Uh, if we type heaven earth into that search feature, we find roughly 200 times that the words appear together. And it's almost like this dramatic narrative thread that works its way from Genesis in the beginning of the biblical story to Revelation at the end, um, the storyline of heaven and earth. And I suggest the biblical story is that uh, God has created a good heavens and a good earth, uh, but they have been torn apart by the destructive power of sin, death, and hell. But because God is good, he's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth, to redeem his creation from the evil that we've unleashed that's tearing it apart. And so one way we can say that is, you know, God's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. Another way I think we can say the same thing, uh, I put it in the book, is that God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. <laughs> like, because God is good, he's on a mission to get the hell out of earth. And when I say the hell, hell out of earth, I'm talking about, like, the power of hell. Whether we're talking about on massive, systemic levels, I think international, you know, things like um, sex trafficking or genocide or war, these things that we see just ravaging and tearing our world apart on these massive scales, or also on these very intimate personal levels in the human heart, things like pride and lust and rage and greed, these things that we all struggle with. Um, Jesus, uh, he, you know, he teaches that, Man, you say you haven't murdered your neighbor, but you have this anger, this rage, this animosity towards them in your heart. Or you say you haven't committed adultery, but you've lusted after someone in your heart. You know, the one of the ways I put it in the book, Jesus is not interested in just pruning back the branches on the wicked tree. He wants to actually dig up the root, you know. And um, and so I think the, the storyline of the Bible is not God's going to whisk some people up into heaven where they get the you know, the, all the, all the cotton candy and whatever, you know, and then he's going to throw other people down to hell where he's got kind of this vindictive dark side for others. No, I think the biblical storyline is actually because God is good. He's on a mission to reconcile heaven and earth. And he's on a mission to, uh, not so much to get us the hell out of earth as rather to get the hell out of us on earth. Like he's on a mission to actually uproot the power of sin and evil that we have, allowed to take root in our own hearts and lives. Uh, so that would be an example, kind of the first shift, I'd say, is just kind of a shift in the storyline. And that's not like making up something new. Like that's actually the dominant, like church's historic teaching on it is the God's out to reconcile heaven and earth. And that means dealing with sin and death and hell. interesting now 
one of the other ones that you have is about the location. I think a lot of times we say, uh, you know, you're going down to hell. Uh, it, it's, it's, you know, underneath the earth. A lot of uh, cartoons also, you know, I can think of Looney Tunes cartoons that, that send people into the earth and it's down below when they go to hell. Talk to me a little bit about the location. Yes, that's great. Yeah. So the, the next paradigm shift has to do with the location and that's going, yeah, like you said, I think most people, when they think of hell, they often envision what I would call the, the underground torture chamber, right? Like it's way down deep in the belly of the earth. This is where people go and kind of the, the bowels of the earth so that God can kind of vindictively um, torture them forever. And the next three shifts are related to that character where I'd say um, that in the New Testament, uh, that A, the location is not underground, B, the purpose is not torture, and C, the construction is not a chamber. So let me explain what I mean by each of those. Um, the location is not underground, uh, but actually uh, outside the city. And what I mean by that is um, when, when Jesus talks about hell in, in the New Testament, the dominant word that's used there is Gehenna. And uh, Gehenna, it was the Valley of Hinnom. It was a literal physical place just outside Jerusalem's walls. And so Jesus, when he talks about Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, he's not talking about a vortex out in a galaxy far, far away or a place down, you know, way down deep in the belly of the earth. He's talking about a place that you could walk to, like walk outside of Jerusalem's walls. You could GPS and kind of head, head out there to the valley, right? Um, but why? What's the significance of this place? Uh, it's a place that actually has a dark and destructive history in the Old Testament. Uh, it's associated with child sacrifice uh, in the Old Testament. It's the place where, uh, when the people of God, when Israel rebelled against God, it's the place where they would go um, to murder their children to these foreign uh, gods. And it becomes this thing that God rages against, going, never did I command such a thing. Why would you do such a terrific thing? And so it's, uh, it becomes a signpost for the prophets in the Old Testament of idolatry and injustice. Of idolatry and injustice. So on idolatry, I like to think of the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna as being like that cheap hotel on the outskirts of town where um, the spouse goes to have an affair on their faithful, loving spouse back home, right? Uh, that's kind of the picture here. When Israel uh, leaves God, uh, his holy place in the temple in the center of the city where they were to dwell together in intimate union, and they go outside the city to Gehenna. It's like they're going out to the cheap hotel to cheat on God with these other idols, these other lovers. It's a betrayal um, uh, on God. And so in the prophets, when God confronts what they're doing in Gehenna, it's almost like the picture of a spouse catching their, their husband or wife, you know, catching their wife in bed with another man and just being like, what are you doing? You know, like angry, like I, I, I love it. There's, there's an anger there, but it's a proper uh, right anger. And it was also a place of injustice. Like, this is a place where Israel murdered her children. And if she was married to God, this means that they were also God's kids, right? And God gets angry going, how could you do this? And the reality is in the Bible, I think we often think of like idolatry and injustice as two different things. Like one's a religious topic, the other's maybe a practical or political or whatever. Um, but the reality in scripture is that they're intertwined. Like the idolatry leads to injustice. When we betray God, when we make other things in our lives more ultimate than God, sex, money, power, whatever, that it unleashes destruction in our community and our families and our lives and our neighborhoods, like displacing God from the throne, so to speak, in our lives, like actually 
unleashes destruction in the long run. That, that would be the, the claim. So when we think about, then Jesus steps on the scene, he, and when he talks about Gehenna, the, the, the picture, the backdrop that he's drawing on is one where the prophets held out this hope that yes, Gehenna, the wildfire of Gehenna, it's worked its way into the city, into Jerusalem, into the people. But the good news is God's a good king and he's coming back. He's going to return to his capital of Jerusalem. He's going to establish his kingdom. And when he does, he'll kick out the rebellion back outside the city where it came from, back to Gehenna, where, where it came from. And so I think the location is significant, not just like it's because it's a different place, but it speaks to a different motive. It's not so much up and down. It's not so much like a story of up and down, uh, but one of center and periphery, right? Like not so much one where good folks go up, bad folks go down, as rather one of center and periphery where God is coming to establish his kingdom at the center of creation. And all those things that stand unrepentantly opposed to the ways of his kingdom, his character, and ultimately God himself, like those things get pushed outside to the periphery of the kingdom where they can no longer hurt and destroy. It's a fascinating thought. Now, you had mentioned before, Joshua, that the, the purpose might not be torture as we mm. as we sort of talk about it today, especially from our pulpits and within our within our communities. Can you talk to me a little bit about what the purpose of hell would be? Yeah. So as far as the purpose, you know, when, when we have kind of the, the storyline and the location in place, then I think it starts to shed light on the purpose as well, um, meaning that often people think like, OK, this is God's got kind of this vindictive dark side and this is where he tortures people forever or whatever. And we start to see the, the motive or purpose on God's part is not torture so much as protection. Right. What I mean by that is God establishes his kingdom and then he protects it. From all those forces, people, those that stand unrepentantly opposed to the goodness of his kingdom. So it's not because God is not good. It's, it's precisely because people have set themselves in opposition to his goodness and the, the ways of his goodness in his kingdom. God protects the flourishing of his new Jerusalem, his kingdom, the new creation. He protects it from the wildfire that wants to burn it down and tear it up and destroy it. And so God protects his kingdom by containing the unrepentant power of sin outside and uh, the, the power of unrepentant sin. And uh, one of my you know favorite verses is actually a few, but one is in Isaiah, where Isaiah is, in Isaiah, God says, in essence, like on that day, like on that day when I establish my kingdom, um, God says, no longer will they hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. And the holy mountain was Mount Zion or Jerusalem. And God's essentially saying, on that day when I establish my kingdom, they're not going to be able to hurt or destroy or tear things up in the city of God anymore. Right? And he goes on to say, because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so there's this picture that right now there are these forces that hurt and destroy, like the power of sin and death and hell. Right? And when God establishes his kingdom, he protects his kingdom from those forces that currently have their hate. I mean, we just watch daily news or, you know, just look around in our neighborhoods and our world. Like we see the power of hell at work, tearing things apart. And part of the hope of the gospel is that because God is good, he's being patient with it, but his patience will not last forever. And he will ultimately protect his kingdom from these things by containing them outside of his kingdom. And I, I find it interesting in this regard, like, 
it's what I, I like to call like the fairy tale come true. That when you look at the fairy tales of our world, it seems it seems to me they often express some of the deepest longings of the human heart throughout history. And we see this kind of same kind of motif. There's the uh, theme of uh, things are wrong today, horrible. You know, I love reading to my kids, and in a lot of the stories, there's like things are wrong and horrible. There's corruption. There's injustice. There's people acting wickedly, awfully to each other. You know, um, but then. The, the, the good king comes or the superhero or the whatever. And part of the end game is like that they set things right again. They reestablish peace and goodness and flourishing. And the, um, the, the Joker or Sauron or whoever, like those who are set against the flourishing of society, like are pushed to the periphery. Like right now they're at the center where they can hurt and destroy But, we see it's 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 actually a common thing, and when we see it in our fairy tales, we don't go like, "Oh, that's so mean," or "That's unjust," or "Why would Batman do that to the Joker?" or "Why would you know?" Like, we don't we don't feel like, "Come on, let's let him back in." Like, there's a sense that's developed that, like, in their character and their personhood, they've set themselves in opposition to the end game of goodness and flourishing reestablished in, in in the center of things, and it's right that society and all would be protected from what they by their very nature and I want to, want to inflict. Um, another, uh, another angle on that, you know, you could say like, Oh, well, fairy tales, that's kind of fluffy and frou-frou and whatever, but also on a bigger, um, kind of the blood and dirt of actual history. Uh, I've had the chance to work in a number of places like, um, post genocide and Cambodia was one of those where I spent a lot of time. And it's interesting. There's this theme. I think we see in the way that we often talk about like our, war stories, war history for the, this hope for the liberation of the capital. And in Cambodia's own history, this was a big theme where uh, during the Khmer Rouge, the genocide back in the seventies, there was this longing. I talked to, you know, survivors where they're just like, man, I remember being out in the fields just going, would someone come and kick the Khmer Rouge out of power? Would they liberate the capital from these forces of darkness that are at work right now, tearing our country apart with violence and whatever else? And eventually that happened. The Vietnamese came in, they liberated Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia. They kicked the Khmer out of power. And the Khmer said, hey, rather than hunting us down and killing us and destroying us, would you let us kind of hole up in the northern borderlands? We've been stripped of our weapons. We've been stripped of our power. We can't hurt and destroy anymore. Um, would you let us kind of live out our days in peace? And as an act of mercy, the new government said, okay. Yeah, we, we, we're stripping you of your power and your weaponry and all that. Um, and yet, rather than annihilating you, like that would really be kind of the vindictive move is to just annihilate them. Um, but rather than annihilate you, we're going to create a space that um, you can continue on. You know? And so that's what happened. And I, and I think of that as almost like a metaphor for what we see happening in the, the hope of the kingdom as well, is that there are forces and people and things that have set themselves in opposition to God and his kingdom. But when God liberates his capital, like new Jerusalem, Jerusalem's kind of seen as like the capital of God's worldwide kingdom in, in scripture. So when God comes back, he liberates um, Jerusalem, whether we take that metaphorically, whatever, but he, he liberates his capital. He establishes his kingdom in the world and he protects it. And I, I think 
it would actually be more vindictive for God to just go, ah, you're against me. I'm going to snuff you. You know, I'm going to kind of wipe you out and annihilate you. Um, what would historically be called kind of annihilationism. I think it's actually relative to the other options could be seen as an act of God's mercy that he creates a space um, where those who are in opposition to him and his kingdom uh, can't come in, but also rather than annihilating them, God sustains them uh, to, to continue on in, in that space. And so the image I think is not so much torture as far as God's motive as it is protection, uh, but there is an element of what we call torment to it. And I think there's kind of a difference between torment and torture, right? Like torture is kind of like, uh, I could have a headache because someone's beat me over the head with a two by four. That'd be, they're tortured, right? Or I could be have a headache because uh, I didn't drink enough water or whatever, right? And one of those, the torture kind of arises from the outside in, uh, the torment from the inside out. And I think that's more the picture we have here is that if you give yourself over to sin and resistance and opposition against God, um, the corrupted nature of that existence, there's, there's a torment to that. Like, uh, I used to love the show Mad Men when it was on, you know, and I feel like you get to the end and Don Draper, like he seems like he's in a state of torment as he's out on the beaches at the end, like he's got wealth, he's got fame, he's got whatever else. And yet his lust, his greed, his pride is all these things have kind of unraveled his life around him. And while he's got so much of what the world would say is success, like he seems like he's tormented by the corruption of his character and his own estate and existence. And, and I think there's a sense in, um, the finality of things with God's judgment, calling out who we really are and what we really want, what we've given ourselves to that, um, there is a right sense of torment, but it's not because again, God's a meanie with a vindictive dark side so much as a God handing us over to what we've chosen and kind of sustaining the execution of that thing in, in, in our state, so to speak. And so that's uh, but the motive is one of protecting the goodness and flourishing of his kingdom. And finally, you have the idea of the construction that maybe it's not a chamber but a hardened heart. Can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, totally. So by the chamber, kind of the caricature of a chamber, what I mean by that is I think for a lot of people, the image is something like, um, you know, like people envision it where like people are going, God, I'm so sorry. I love you. I'll do anything. I just want to be with you. Like, is there any chance, you know, and God's kind of like, are too late. You missed it. I'm, you know, like I, I'm, throwing away the key, like you're stuck, right? And where the, the the point being, like, it's a strange reversal of the gospel where we're the ones pursuing God and God is the one backing away, unwilling to be found. And that's the caricature. I think the reality that we see in the gospel, you have a lot of the language and imagery in scripture talks about like the hardening of the heart, which really moves in the other direction, that it's actually us hardening ourselves and our resistance to God and our rejection of his pursuit of our opposition to his ways that, um, that you can see this picture almost like we're curving in upon ourselves and becoming encased in this hardened reality against God. Uh, so the construction piece there goes that I, I think it's, it's, um, CS Lewis has the famous quote about how the doors of hell are locked from the inside, uh, that, we're, you know, we're the ones it's our, it's not that God locks us in 
against our repentant will. Like we're like, God, I'm so sorry. And God's like, too bad. So much as we lock the door through our unrepentant will, right? Like our, it's our rejection and opposition to his goodness and kingdom that, that harden us in that state. That's not to say that God's not active in it. I think God is actively judging and calling out what we've chosen and what we want. And he knows us at a deeper level than we know ourselves. So, so God's kind of actively uh, involved judging and calling all that stuff out. But again, it's not because he's got this vindictive dark side. It's because he's calling out reality as it truly is. And the root issue, uh, what we call kind of the construction of hell again, is it's something that's arising from the evil and corruption and depravity that has its roots in uh, making its way into the world and through our own human heart. I find it interesting. There's this uh, in James, he talks about how um, he says, you know, consider what a great forest is set on fire and by just a little spark, right? So he's kind of going, you think about like a, a giant forest and all it takes is one little spark from the campfire or from the firework or whatever. And it can just burn the whole thing down acres and acres, miles and miles. It can burn down all this forest from just one spark. And James goes on to say, similarly, the tongue, like the power of the tongue, our words can dare to tear down people, can tear down neighbors, can tear down community, can tear down our own lives. And he goes on to say, and when it does, the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. And the word he uses there is Gehenna. And I find that a really powerful statement that James is going, hell makes its way into the world through us. Like we're the ones who unleash its destructive power. So it's not so much that God's like, ah, I'm constructing this place to torture you forever. So much as um, God doesn't create the heavens and the earth and hell. God creates a good heavens and a good earth. And it's our rebellion and bending the knee to the enemy and those kind of things like that. We're the ones who unleash the destructive power of sin, death and hell into the world in that sense. And so when you're, that coworker in the cubicle next door is gossiping and whatever else, like they're not just being annoying. It's like they're breathing hell into the office is kind of the picture. Right. And so I think there's this, 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 uh, helpful warning of going, uh, be wary of the kind of things that we give ourselves to and the kind of people that we're becoming the potential corruption of our character and kind of the patterns of our lives and all. Um, and yeah, in relationship to God, one of the ways I, I like to think of this talking about in the book is that um, uh, the, the gospel, I think, is like a wedding proposal, right, where Christ is the groom, the church is the bride, and the cross is that place where Jesus lays down his life to invite us into union with him, saying, essentially, marry me, like, come, be bound in life with me, in union with me forever. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to be faithful. Well, like, let's, let's enter life together forever. And... The question arises, what what are the options if we say no to the wedding proposal? If God is pursuing us, coming after us, offering union with him forever, but if we prefer to be left to ourselves, you know, left left alone, if we prefer life apart from God rather than with God, what are the options? And as far as I can see, there's four options. And I think the picture we've seen in the Bible is the best of the four, right? So uh, I think on the one hand, like God's first option can kind of be like, marry me and bring in your old lovers, right? So this option is kind of like, um, okay, well, marry me, but I'm going to kind of wink, wink, turn a blind eye to, to sin, bring the idols back into Gehenna, let a little bit of the child sacrifice back in, back in, you know, like, and the problem with this is that 
it's a sham marriage. Like it's not actually more merciful of God to act this way because man, if babies are still crying and nations are still warring and we still see all the same junk we see every night on the evening news, you know, like creation hasn't truly been redeemed. And so I don't think it's more merciful for God to ignore unrepentant sin. Um, and not only because he cares about the state of our world, he cares about us. Like God's actually jealous in a good sense. Like he wants all of us because we were made for him. And so, so I think there's this picture here where it, it's, in my mind, it's, it's not more merciful for God to ignore unrepentant sin and just say, Hey, just well, marry me and bring the old lovers in with you. I think the second option is for God to say, okay, marry me or I'll kill you. <laughs> and this is what we might call like the annihilationist view in, in the ways sometimes that it sometimes gets unpacked. And the picture here is one where I think someone's saying, okay, well, God doesn't have to ignore unrepentant sin, but can't he just annihilate the unrepentant sinner? And I think the problem with this is a, like that's a really bad way to propose. <laughs> like, like if, if it's, you know, if, if the only reason, you know, you're doing that is, is fear of punishment, like, okay, I'll marry you, but it's just so, you know, you know, like that's not actually loving proposal or marriage way to approach things. Um, but B, I also think it's, um, one of my concerns with annihilationism is I think that it undermines the significance and the power of Christ's resurrection. Like Christ has taken upon himself our annihilation in the grave in order to raise us from death forever. He's conquered death. It has no more hold, you know? And so I think the question now is not whether we can hide ourselves from the face of God in the grave, in death and in kind of an ending of our existence. The question is rather, how do we stand in relation to the one by whom we're raised? Um, so I, short though, I'd say again, I don't, I don't think that's a more merciful option. Kind of like the Cambodia Khmer Rouge example I mentioned, it was actually an act of mercy not to vindictively annihilate, but rather to create space to go on in, in the self-chosen existence, right? The third option, I think, is for God to say, okay, well, marry me or I'll lock you in the basement. And this is kind of the, what I say, like kind of the universalist option, right? Like, okay, marry me or I'll lock you in the basement going like, um, all right, hell's not that great, but I'm going to use it to sort of purge you of evil until you get into a condition where you can get into the good stuff. And couple problems there. I think one again is like, that's a really bad way to propose. Like I don't recommend, right. Um, but B, I think it, it, it's, uh, it misunderstands the nature of what's going on. It's essentially saying, okay, God, don't ignore unrepentant sin. Don't annihilate the unrepentant sinner. But instead, why can't God, you redeem sin? And I think the problem here is it misunderstands the nature of the gospel and what's going on. The problem with hell is not God's refusal to redeem. It's our refusal to be redeemed. Like God has uh, accomplished redemption on the cross that's freely available for all who would receive him. So it's not like God's kind of stubborn refusal. The, the issue, again, is kind of that hardening of the heart. It's our opposition to the God who's come for his world in Christ. Um, and then, the, But the other problem is I think it misunderstands the nature of love. Because it coercion doesn't incite love, right? Like abducting someone and locking them in their basement. I don't know. There are weird stories where abductees fall in love with their abductors, right? But that we'd all look at that and kind of go, "That's distorted. There's something wrong there. It's like a psychological, like something, something horrific that's happened through the right. abuse, right?" And so I think it's off to say, like, I don't think it's a more merciful option for God to kind of 
use hell to try and kind of use coercion and force, whatever, to kind of get the stuff out of us and then purge us for his kingdom. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's actually more loving for God to do, let's say the fourth option uh, is marry me or go your own way. You know, that, that God invites us into union with himself. He's paid the price, you know, like he, he wants to be with us. Um, but like any good marriage proposal, you know, like God has the dignity for us or to, to, to kind of respect. And you might even say honor, you know, if that's the right word to use, but, uh, to honor the decision that we've made and to treat it according to what it is, you know? And so there I'd say, I, I would suggest that I think that's the most loving and of the four, like that's the most merciful option. That's the best kind of scenario I, I, I can see. And so I think the invitation is in the union with God. And I'll kind of land the plane here with this, but just that, you know, I think people might ask, oh, what does that mean? What does union with God look like? And I would suggest that saying yes to the marriage proposal of being united with God, it is both the easiest thing in the world and the hardest thing in the world. Like it's the easiest thing in the world because it's, it's free. Like God wants to be with us. Jesus has paid the price. Like God's gone all the way to hell and back to unite us with himself forever. So it's easy because there's nothing you got to do. It's just saying yes. Right. No one hand. And yeah, on the other hand, I'd say it's the hardest thing in the world because it costs us everything. Right. Like it, it, it's free. And yet it means letting go like getting married. Like it means letting go of a life lived autonomously on my own to enter into union with another and we're not just marrying Joe Schmo, right? Like, like it's, it's talking about being bound in union with the creator of the universe. And that's like massive, holy ground and bending the knee to the king. Like he gets to, um, as a citizen of his kingdom, he gets to define the ways of his kingdom by his goodness. It's a commitment to us being shaped and formed by his purpose and will for our lives, that his goodness would begin to shape and root out the, you know, power of hell from within us kind of thing. So, so all I have to say, it's, you know, I think it's the easiest thing in the world, the hardest thing in the world, but hopefully in summary, I think what we see in all these paradigm shifts is um, whether or not it answers every jot and tittle, every little question. But I think we see that the story, it's driven by the goodness of God through and through. Like it's because God is good. He's out to reconcile heaven and earth from power of hell. It's because God is good. He's going to kick the rebellion outside to protect his kingdom and contain the unrepentant power of sin. And it's because God is good that he invites us into union with himself, that he um, respects in a sense, or I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, the, the hardened heart, like he doesn't force or coerce, but calls it what it is and deals with that accordingly. But it's the goodness of God that's at work here through and through. Those are powerful thoughts, Joshua. And I've really enjoyed our conversation. As we bring our time to a close, what's something that you think maybe a first step that the church could take to better walk in, in these realities and, and sort of rewrite the narrative of hell that our culture uh, has assigned to it? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I think right now we, we use the language a lot, uh, rightly so, from Jesus's prayer when Jesus taught us to pray. He says, you know, uh, kind of opens our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think there's this... Um, we have this language gets used a lot today. And, and again, rightly so it's powerful language of heaven breaking into earth. Like what we want to see is 
heaven breaking earth, like God's realm crashing into ours and actually transforming our world with his goodness. Uh, but I think there's like a flip side of the coin as well, that if heaven breaks into earth, it kind of implicitly means hell does too. Right? Like, like, and so I think starting to be attentive to, um, for me, part of the power has been how to take steps, like looking at when I look at the tragic and horrific things occurring in our world, again, whether we're talking about like genocide or war or things internationally, that are just tearing apart our world and destroying it. Being able to look at that and go, that's not just tragedy. That's not just about that's, that's actually the power of hell at work in our world. I think seeing the, um, there's an author, Samantha Power, who's kind of the world's leading expert on genocide. And she called her book, A Problem from Hell, like looking at genocide throughout the 20th century. And, uh, and I don't know that, uh, 20, I don't know that she's a Christian. I don't, I don't believe so, but as far as I know, but I think her language is spot on that reclaiming the sense that like, there are kind of spiritual realities that work behind the dark and destructive patterns and things that we see in our world. And that's true in our personal lives too. When, um, that person has the affair and throws a grenade into their family, you know, or when, uh, the abuse that's happening in, uh, whether a home or whatever relationship, when, uh, when we give ourselves to, to things that, um, run against, the rocks of God's purposes for our world. It's not just, I made a mistake. It's actually dude, like the power of hell has its wicked roots in, in my heart. And I think when we see that it both, to my mind, it increases the gravity of kind of the weight of the gnarly stuff that's going on in our lives and our neighborhoods and our world. Um, but it also creates the context where I think the cry becomes all the more powerful when we cry out with Jesus, like your kingdom come, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think my prayer, my dream with all this is not just that we, you know, not that we get fixated on the bad stuff, but more that we'd recognize our desire and need to see God's kingdom break in, in and through our lives here and now. And I, I think the invitation would be to the prayer, like God, your kingdom come, your will be done here in Phoenix, here in Portland, here in New Jersey, here in wherever, you know, our listeners are listening from, God, shape me by your kingdom, your goodness. May the reality of heaven, God, your very presence break into my life and break into your world through me. You know, that we'd be agents of God's reconciling work of his kingdom and his goodness here on earth as it is in heaven. Those are great thoughts, man. Thank you. And thanks so much for being on the show. Where can people connect with you and your books? Yeah, definitely. So um, the books are available wherever books are sold kind of online. Uh, I have a website, uh, joshuaryanbutler.com. I'm, I'm not the best of keeping it updated all the time, but there, there are articles, books, resources, sermons, speaking stuff, any of those kind of things out there. Um, and then I'm on Twitter at butlerjosh, at butlerjosh. And so, yeah, I would love to uh, connect with any, any listeners through there and yeah. Yeah. We'll make sure we throw all of it in the show notes. But again, dude, thank you so much for making the time. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Me as well. And that wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.